0: Did you hear that? What what is that? Do you hear it, Kevin, in the back? What is it? It's a phone. Oh, it's, from here it so, kind of sounds like a, a music box or something like that. You always, I always ask you guys when I hear some because you know, got three kids, man. I I could be hearing things at this. So it's, 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 uh, if you're joining us, as Drew said, we're in our Apologetics Month. That's a month of August where we dedicate to the issue of apologetics. Apologetics is um, this practice, this activity where you give a defense for the truth claims of Christianity, its historical claims, its worldview claims. And so today we continue that with an incredible guest, Bobby Conway. He's a author, YouTube Jedi Master, um, the guy, wh- where is he? Is he? You're not here. I'll keep talking. Stay right there. Stay right there because this is good. This is good. Uh, he's got a doctorate of ministry. So, so, so he went the, the education route, got the doctorate of ministry. And I, it says on your bio, I didn't ask you, but it says you're, you're now pursuing a, a Ph.D. as well. So it takes a special person to get a doctorate and then say, I'd like a second doctorate. I mean, that, that's no joke. That's no joke. I'm just going to add that to my bio just to sound cool. <laughs> I'm going to say, I have a couple but I'm going to make it look special. One's going to be like in biology, neuroscience, and then there's a doctorate of ministry on this side. So I just love learning. I love learning. I just never want to stop. So uh, he hosts this uh, popular YouTube channel called The One Minute Apologist. And so what we did today is we gave him 42 minutes and we said, you have a minute for the hardest 42 objections to christianity that there are and it's got to be one minute apiece actually we're kidding we're going to do five and uh before i keep rambling bobby conway welcome him
1: thanks bro is the mic on we good we live you can hear me Great. Well, it's wonderful to be with you guys here in California. I'm stoked for the opportunity uh, to be back. I actually grew up here and went to high school at Live Oak. And so check it out. Come on. Oh, we got some Live Oaker. So hey, fond memories, 1991, senior year, pitching in Gilroy, winning two to one. Love it. That's one of my favorite memories in Gilroy. Another favorite memory in Gilroy was eating at Joe's Pizza. Is Joe still around? No, all right, well, that's too bad. Um, All good things must come to an end, right? Uh, I really admire what's happening at this church, that you guys set aside a time each year to be able to focus on equipping the church to understand why it is that we believe what we believe. And I think that's important because a lot of times people can look at us as Christians and think we're just believing in some fairy tale or Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. And it's helpful for us to be able to articulate what it is that we believe and why. And so hats off big time to your church and your leadership and your pastor. And I really dig his whole vibe, the whole long do. He looks like the guy I bumped into in Santa Cruz back in the drug days when I wrote a check for a hit of acid to a guy. You know, he's got that cool look, so. <laughs> uh, um, that is bad, right? Uh, I don't have any cash. Can I write you a check? You know, obviously I needed Jesus. Uh, um, I just flew through Dallas yesterday uh, doing an apologetics conference. Again, by the way, the word apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia. It means to give a defense. So when we talk about apologetics, we're talking about giving a defense for what we believe. You can have a Muslim apologist, atheist apologist, Christian apologist. It's just being able to explain why it is that you believe what you believe. And so I was uh, in Dallas with some of the speakers that you've had here. Uh, Sean McDowell, uh, Jay Warner Wallace, Frank Turk. And so I told Frank, he's speaking here next week, that uh, I'm just gonna roast him a little bit. But no, uh, he's ready to see you guys next week. And uh, just such a dear friend of mine. When I was younger, I can say that I had some questions floating through my soul. I was totally uneducated in high school so uneducated that I failed the ASVAB three times to get into the military. I wanted to go to the Marine Corps and you needed a 31. I failed it, waited a month. I failed it again, waited six months and I failed it. I got a 27 the third time. You needed a 28 to get in the United States Army. They gave me a waiver and then I went and failed the physical because I had a knee injury. I got my way through high school because I cheated and I have no idea really how I got through. I just cheated my way through. Never remember reading a book except for Freckle Juice by Judy Bloom. <laughs> and I remember getting sent home from fifth or sixth grade for gluing a book together. And I hated learning, I hated class. But on the inside, I would think about what am I doing here in this universe? Why do I exist? And I was one of those guys that I literally went through high school at Live Oak and I never heard the gospel until I was 19 down in Southern California playing college baseball. And my teammate took me to hear an evangelist by the name of Greg Laurie, who used words like dude, cool, bro, and stoked. And I resonated. And I was trying to get two questions answered What do I do with my guilt? And what is the purpose of my life? And I felt that those two compelling questions were answered in the person of Jesus. And getting those two questions answered made all the difference in my life. And as I went on a quest of learning from that point forward, being The guy who was so uneducated, I had to pay people to type my papers through Bible college. I taught myself to type between Bible college and seminary, and then I went and did a four-year master's degree with Greek and Hebrew. And I didn't even know English grammar when I was learning it. And then went on and kept studying and kept growing And I got a heart to learn because I wanted to know about this God who answered those two questions, forgiving me of my guilt, giving me meaning and purpose in life. Well, what I wanna do in this time is take on five questions. It says the top five most compelling questions. I can't promise you that I'm answering the top five most compelling but I can tell you that I'm answering some serious, compelling questions for our consideration. If you're like me, you've got questions. You're wondering why you exist. Is there meaning in life? Why am I here? What do I do with my guilt? How can I know that Christianity is true? We live in this melting pot culture of eclectic beliefs and in this mosaic of uh, belief and worldview that we live in, we start bumping up against other people who have different perspectives on life and we go, how can I be sure that my beliefs are correct? Because person A is nice and person B is nice Or person C seems sincere. Or person D has good explanations. How can I be sure that what I believe offers a plausible worldview for life? And so I want to take on five questions. And I want to answer them. And I'm going to spend a little more time on question one, two, and five than I will on three and four. And I want us to consider these questions as a Case for Christianity. Why become a Christian? And I hope at the end that if you're not a Christian, you'll consider what is shared and at least realize I need to do some research here and make sure I know what I'm rejecting. The first question Does God exist? Now that is certainly a compelling question. Genesis 1-1 in the scriptures, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I love how the Bible starts. It just starts off with this acknowledgement that God created this. Now there's three options here, right? You're gonna have people who are gonna say that, you know, there is a God, there isn't a God, or we can't know. You're gonna have atheism who says there is no God, They're going to have the agnostic who's going to say, you can't know, and then the theist who's going to say, God created the universe. Or it could be polytheistic that many gods were a part of this epic that we live in. So think about the idea first of agnosticism. The agnostic says, you know, you really can't know. And It can look appealing at times when you're struggling because you could just sit in the seat of a skeptic and just say, hey, you can't know. You can't know. You can't know. But here's what I would say if you're agnostic. There is one thing you know, that there is an explanation. You're just not sure you can know it. But I would want to contend, wouldn't you rather give your life to the best explanation instead of just saying you can't know anything? And so agnosticism is the view that sits in a seat and makes no real decision. But that is a decision in and of itself, to not decide. Now, the theist obviously believes in God, but the atheist will deny God. And so, how then do we tackle this idea of atheism, secularism, and we have to be careful that we don't polarize atheists. There's plenty of wonderful atheists and there's plenty of miserable Christians, right? There's good people and bad people amongst all of us, right? We, we, it, but the question is, is not if somebody's a good person or a bad person, but is it true what we believe? And on atheism, the atheist might say, well, you know, who made God then if you believe in God? But that's a category mistake. That's like saying, what does Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata taste like? Well, I've never tasted Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata or Chopin's great classical music or Bach's symphonies. But I can say this, that I've listened to it and I have fallen in deep love with classical music and where it takes me. You listen to it, you experience it. I will say that it's a category mistake because the question, who may God, the who assumes that there's somebody behind that. And it only pushes the question back one step further. God is a necessary being. He is self-existent. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. God is the one who started this all. We are contingent beings. That is to say, that our existence is contingent or dependent upon God. He is the creator. And so, how then can we think about atheism? What might we say? Well, we would say that the universe has a few options. It is either here by chance, by necessity, Or design. The universe is here by chance, necessity, or design. To say the universe is here by chance would be taking Darwinian naturalism and natural selection and uh, building out the theory that some 13.7 billion years ago, uh, this world came into existence and over time we evolved. But things don't pop into existence out of nothing. Out of nothing, no thing comes. So what's easier to believe? That nothing took nothing and made something or that something and someone took nothing and made everything. And as my good friend who will be speaking to you next week and the author of the book said, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. So, chance, we don't see things popping into existence. We don't worry that we're going to go home and something's just going to pop into existence. Not only that, it's known as this idea of methodological naturalism. And that is a fancy way of saying that on atheism... There is a way of doing research and it is through the method of naturalism. It's only looking as in this universe as if it's closed. And I think that's closed-minded. I think that the theist is willing to look beyond the universe and to think about the fact that there's other indicators. So we would say that our universe is not here by chance. But then is it here by necessity is that how it's here well what do we mean by that for a long time uh, the theory known as the steady state theory of the universe was popular that is to say that the universe just eternally existed that it had no beginning that it was always here now that theory doesn't hold anymore and even amongst popular uh, cosmology and physics. Uh, Physicists know that the universe had a beginning. Einstein with his general theory of relativity improved on Newtonian physics and with his theory it showed that the universe had a beginning. Not only that, The universe with the Hubble telescope, Edwin Hubble showed that when you look through the telescope, what we can see is that the universe is expanding. What does that tell us if the universe is expanding? It tells us that if we could watch a videotape and watch history In reverse, we would see an expanding universe shrinking down to a singularity to the point where it began in a big bang. And so this universe is expanding. So envision a balloon with buttons on it and blowing up the balloon. And those buttons represent the galaxies that are growing farther and farther apart. And with the second law of thermodynamics, that is the law of entropy. And that law tells us that the universe is running out of usable energy. So now, track with me for a moment. The universe that we live in, if it's expanding, it's running out of energy, and the energy that's in our universe, the more it expands... And the more the galaxies grow further and further apart, the less energy there is to be spread out, which lead physicists to talk about this heat death in the end in an eschatological crunch where it collapses. So we would want to say as we think about this then, that the universe we live in, it's not here by chance. We don't wanna say things like, it just popped into existence out of nothing. That seems gullible. Neither do we wanna say that the universe that we live in is here by necessity. It just happens to exist because of the expansion of the universe, Uh, as I said, the theory of relativity, bringing it back to a singularity, uh, the second law of thermodynamics. So then, how is this universe here? I would want to say that the universe that we live in is here by design. Everything that is designed has a designer. Every genesis has a generator. Every beginning has a beginner. Every effect has a cause. And God is the one who caused all of this. He is the one who began all of this. And so that is a beautiful picture for us to consider. In Psalm 19, the psalmist declared, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, the psalmist was able to say that absent of the telescope. Think about that. We live in a universe. Here we are in the Milky Way galaxy moving at rapid speed, at speed so fast it would make us dizzy. And I'm talking to you, giving a message and I look still and we are on a chunk of of earth flying at rapid speeds. When you consider our earth that we live on, it seems rather big. The sun is 93 million miles away. The sun is one small to medium-sized star. Now, you could fit 1.3 1.3 million Earths inside of the sun that is just one small to medium-sized star. Now, one person estimated that if you think about all of the stars in the universe and how many there are, if you had to divvy them out, we've got over 7 billion people now, but when this was thought, uh, if you had to divvy it out over 6 billion people, if you had to take the amount of stars in the universe, each person would be handed one trillion stars. And the sun happens to be one small to medium-sized star that could contain 1.3 million Earths. Extravagant. And God created all of this. He made this. This is his canvas that we look at. It declares the glory of God. And then we think about the information-rich DNA uh, that has been discovered with this information, this coding that is there. It shows intelligent design, that we're not an accident, that behind all of this is intelligence in the DNA, the design. Now, imagine like if I was out at Santa Cruz chilling at the beach and I was just laying out and I looked up and I saw in the clouds, happy birthday, Bobby. I wouldn't think, wow, it's so cool like how the wind just kind of like, you know, set this whole deal up and wished me a happy birthday. The information would tell me that it was intended. And the information in our DNA And in the universe tells us that we were intended by God. And so if I was to go to Disney, and I've been, and man, they got these cool looking like Mickey Mouse bushes and Donald Duck bushes. Now imagine how absurd it would sound if I went up to somebody and said, excuse me, can you tell me where I could go get some Donald Duck seeds? I want to plant that garden. We know that somebody is working with their hedges and making that happen. So then, we live in this mass universe and it should drop our jaws, right? But we can forget we're people and we can get complacent in all of this. My dear friend, Jay Warner Wallace, uh, who was a... Uh, detective on the SWAT team and he's been on Inside Edition and he is the the author of Forensic Faith and a lot of great stuff. I had him on my program, The One Minute Apologist and he offered another argument for the existence of God from consciousness. Let's listen to what he said. Welcome to The one One Minute Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Jim Talk to us a little bit how our existence as conscious creatures point to the existence of God.
2: But Here's the problem. If we know we have a conscious experience and we know we, have, we usually associate that with our mental processing in our brain. But if, if atheism is true, we're living in a material universe, which means we're living in a physical universe only made up of space, time, and matter, laws of physics, laws of, of, of chemistry. Can these kinds of things produce an, a non-material consciousness? We certainly can produce a material brain, But is the brain the same as the conscious mind? I think there are many reasons to think this is not the case, that we actually, that the consciousness is not identical to brain. And there's a number of ways of kind of parsing that out. But there's the most important thing. If we have consciousness, non-material consciousness, which is why philosophers, material kind of naturalist philosophers call this the problem of mind to begin with, it's because it's hard to explain how mind could exist if what we really have is nothing more than a material brain. This is this mind-body dualism problem that everyone talks about. So either we have to reject consciousness altogether as an illusion, and many committed atheists, or at least consistent in their worldview, they do reject consciousness. But then of course, we experience consciousness. Or you have to redefine it in some way that really stretches the imagination outside of what our practical experience of consciousness is. Or you have to ask yourself, well, if I can't get immaterial, non-material consciousness from inside this material box we call the universe, What if the thing that's given us this is a non-material mind outside the realm of consciousness that creates in its image? Well, that might explain why we are conscious creatures, but it's an explanation that forces us outside of naturalism to find an answer. And that's why I do think that the best explanation for consciousness is a reflection, a product, of a conscious creator who creates in his image.
1: So we've produced almost a thousand of those videos uh, with uh, a whole amalgamation of topics if you want to go and check out that on YouTube and gather more intel. Another argument for the existence of God, and we could give many, like the argument from desire, the ontological argument, uh, argument from fine-tuning, but would be the moral argument for the existence of God. That is to say that we have this sense that when we do something wrong, we've offended someone. That there is somebody who's watching, somebody who's aware of us. And it helps us to understand when we think about the moral law in that way, that it's pointing to somebody out there, namely God. So we step back and we say, that creation in the universe, God's telling us. it's His fingerprints are out there. It's his artwork. And we need to look beyond the canvas to the one who created it. It would be like uh, looking at a Rembrandt painting, say, The Three Crosses, or a Van Gogh Starry Night, or The Raising Lazarus by Van Gogh, or a Vladimir kush, surrealist piece of artwork, or listening to uh, Yo-Yo Ma play his cello, and just being blown away by the cello or the piece of art instead of the one producing it. We stop too short if we just are in awe of that. There's something in someone that we are to give our respect and awe to. So the information and the design looks so compelling, it's led some people to come up with ways to try to refute it. So some say, you know what? We live in a multiverse, a world ensemble where there are many, many universes and we just happen to be in the one that by chance looks like it was designed. Others have went to the point of saying, aliens came and seeded this place To bring about human life but both of those require explanation who created the multiverse then that even compounds it if there's a multiverse who created that and then who created the aliens to come and seed it so does god exist i tried to share it's not by chance it's not by necessity we are here by design secondly i would want to raise this question and all of the questions will have to go a little bit quicker here Why would God allow suffering and evil in a world that we live in if he's good? And some people will say a statement that goes something like this. If God is good, he would get rid of suffering and evil. And if God is all powerful, he could get rid of all suffering and evil. But suffering and evil exists, therefore God is not good. Some have tried to circumvent that by saying, well, God is good, but he's not all-powerful. He's limited, like the Rabbi Kushner who wrote that. Uh, There's others that would say, if God exists, he's a malevolent bully, a moral monster, so to speak. So they would say, yeah, he's all-powerful, but he's not good. Now, we have to split the horns of this false dilemma by realizing that God is good and he will get rid of suffering and evil and that God can get rid of suffering and evil, but it's on his timing. What accounts for this is the fact that we live in a fallen world. You have natural evils like tsunamis and earthquakes, but moral evils are things like we don't have to you know, swallow too hard to believe that Pol Pot's killing fields or Stalin's you know, gulag archipelago or Hitler's uh, Buchenwald or Auschwitz. It doesn't take us long to consider the horrendous evils throughout history to realize that that is there. But why would God allow that? Because we're free creatures. It's not God that is doing it, right? We're free creatures. And we're not moist robots, like Frank likes to say. i will probably say it next week. We're not these most moist robots. On atheism, we're just, as Richard Dawkins says, dancing to the tune of our DNA. And if everything is determined, there's no accountability for wrong actions. Why send someone to jail if they're just dancing to the tune of their DNA when they do something wrong? But we would say that there is such a thing as real wrongdoing. And we do live in a world of suffering. The late Steve Jobs, when he was a kid, it is said that he went to church often. And on one Sunday, he asked the pastor of the church in a Sunday school class, does God know everything? And the pastor said, yes, Steve, God does know everything. And he says, well, what about this? and he held up a 1968 Life magazine with a cover of starving children in Biafra. And he said, yes, God knows about that. And that was it. No answer, no explanation, and Jobs would leave that day and never go back to church again. He'd become a Buddhist, and a Buddhist is essentially an atheist because in Buddhism, You basically have that the universe is God. It's pantheism. All is God. And if all is God, then there really is no God. So to say that everything is God is to say there is no God because we're not God. So it deserves an explanation when we think about this, that there is suffering. And maybe some of you have been traumatized by the loss of a loved one or confusion by Pain that you're going through or a separation or a, a spouse that's betrayed you or, or trying to raise your kids and, and they won't listen to you and you feel the torment and you wonder, God, where are you? Well, life doesn't always make sense, and it would be to overpromise something. Life can be confusing. Life throws us curveballs, but it's not because there's something wrong with God. God's a good God. And He came to rescue us in the person of Jesus, dying on the cross for our sins. And he took on the greatest suffering and evil ever known to humanity by giving his life for us so that we could get out of here someday and spend forever with him. But in the meantime, this world of suffering is difficult. But what is the option? On atheism, to to go to atheism, you don't have any justice. Pol Pot, Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, they all get away with it. We just die and we go into the dust. On Christianity, we say, yeah, God doesn't always come through when we want him to. He doesn't always do when we want him to, to act out. But at the same token, we know that we have that promise of his justice that will happen in the future. Miroslav Volf talks about growing up under difficult and horrendous circumstances, and oppression and it was their very belief that god is a god of justice that allowed them to just remain positive in the midst of all the difficulties of trust so god is good but yes there is evil but the good news is he's provided a way out through the person of jesus the third question is what is the summum bonum Now, that might be confusing at first, but summum bonum is the Latin phrase that means greatest good. And philosophers have long pondered what is the greatest good that we can pursue in life in order to have a happy life. Philosophers have come up with different candidates for happiness to serve as the greatest good. And all of us have to figure out what is our ultimate in life. All of us are living for something, be it ourselves or something else. And that decision of what our ultimate is will determine our destiny. So some people, they live for beauty, and they don't know how to grow old. And their their inner self dies because they can't stand aging, and their identity's wrapped up in how they look, and the aging process creates tremendous angst and they fear that they're no longer going to be loved as they get older and they miss the days of being and feeling forever young and so they go through surgeries and they starve themselves and they do everything because they believe that the ultimate is to is to feel beautiful and to look beautiful but see all of us are growing old all of us are decaying my hair is turning white for crying out loud We're getting older. We're not getting younger. And so staying young and beautiful, that can't be where our identity's placed. Others put their identity in becoming famous. They want to be famous and popular. But the problem is that can't be the summum bonum of life because if everybody achieved that summum bonum, then there would be no such thing as fame because there would be no distinction. All would be famous. Others believe that the need to be able to Uh, have power in life. But if power is our greatest good, if power is our ultimate, we might abuse people and see people as means to our end of achieving power. And that can't be the greatest good. And money and materialism, that can't serve as our greatest good, the summum bonum of life, because you'll never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Our toys don't go with us. Our virtue, what we stood for, the fabric of our very selves, our convictions. And that's what we want. And so these different candidates from wealth and from fame, and even fame, we, fame is something that has to be bestowed upon us. We can't set our goal to be famous. Other people determine that. And if our Goal is to be popular and famous, then our identity shatters when we lose that. If our goal is to be rich, we could spend our whole life trying to amass wealth. Somebody could come and slip at our brand new house and then sue us and have our wealth. If our identity is in our wealth, guess what? We'll get disillusioned. So the only way then to not be disillusioned in life is for God to be our summum bonum, for God to serve as our greatest good, for us to look at him as the ultimate ultimate. And then all of those other things properly placed are fine. It's okay to want to look good. It's okay to want to have money. It's okay to, uh, uh, if God gave you some fame in, in your life. But it's all kept in proper perspective that it's all about him. So Paul, the apostle, writes in Philippians chapter 1, the greatest book in all the Bible on joy, and he writes it while he's in prison, and he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For you, how would you fill it in? For me to live is what? Is it for beauty? Is it for money? Is it for possessions? Is it for power? Is it for a relationship? And then to die is What? Paul says, for me to live as Christ, and guess what? When we get that right, the summum bonum, the die's game. The fourth question that I want to answer is this. What about religious pluralism? Do all religions lead to God? Some people say, you know what? Getting to heaven is kind of like climbing a mountain. There's many paths. The problem with that is these different worldviews have contradictory claims. You can't say that God exists and doesn't exist. God cannot exist and exist. He can't be and not be. You can't say atheism is true and theism is true. Those are contradictory claims. So we've already said that we believe that God exists. So we've, we're making progress, right? So we're figuring out what we're doing here, and now we're making progress. Saying, "Look, we've given reasons why God created this. So we go, okay, God exists. Okay, but which God? How do we know who? How do we know where? So." We, we can't say that it's many gods and one god. So Hinduism can't be true and Christianity be true. There's contradictory claims. Uh, the Allah of Islam believes that, you know, we have to, our good deeds have to outweigh our bad deeds and the scales will be tipped at the end before judgment. Jesus says we're saved by grace. On, uh, on Hinduism, it's reincarnation and you're going through the cycles of samsara and you're seeking this Uh, opportunity to finally get right. On Buddhism, it's nirvana. Enlightenment. Through the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths that they talk about. And so, what religion? How can we know? Well, polytheism doesn't really shake out because there has to be one ultimate. And so then if we come to theism, then we're at Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. All right, That's where we are. So now we're starting to like narrow in on on this and we're going you know i'm not going to be a polytheist because in polytheism the gods have comp- competing values and views and that can't be right it's like the ancient greek philosophers uh before them like with hesiod and homer where the gods of zeus and poseidon that were going on these gods contradicted each other so which God? Well, we don't have a problem with Judaism. We just believe Christianity is a fuller revelation of the God revealed in Judaism. So then, why not believe in Islam? Well, because we believe that is 700 years later, and, and that Muhammad uh, was uh, deceived with his dreams. In fact, when he got the revelation for the Quran, at first he thought he was demon possessed. Until his wife told him, "No, no, go. This is this is God speaking to you through the angel." So if we go, okay, now we're kind of at Christianity, that's great. Now some people go, but that's so narrow-minded, Bobby. Christians are narrow-minded. Well, truth is like narrow-minded, right? I mean, two plus two is four. We want our doctor to be narrow-minded when we go to get a prescription. We don't want him to say, hey, it's relativism, bro. Just take whatever you want. Want some codeine? Go for it, right? Sure. I want him to be precise. I want him to tell me what I need. And so in Christianity, yes, it's an exclusive claim, but all claims come off exclusive and narrow. Let me share with how it works. Some people will say, you know what? Christians, they're so narrow-minded. I can't, I can't buy that. But guess what? The atheist is narrow-minded. They don't believe there's a God or any gods, and if you believe that, they'll say you're wrong. Isn't that narrow-minded? The polytheist is narrow minded. If you say there is no God or there's one God, they'll say you're wrong. Isn't that narrow minded? The moral relativist who says it doesn't really matter how you live, it's just relative, Uh, they're narrow minded because if you say that there's a way to live that's not morally relative, they'll say you're wrong. Isn't that narrow minded? And yes, a Christian, that claim might seem narrow minded. But we don't want to come off narrow-minded. We want to be loving and we want to be gracious and we want to be able to connect. We don't want to be the people that go out to the culture and throw our moral grenades. We want to go off and say, hey, this Jesus is pretty wonderful and we want you to know him. He came to give us meaning and life and purpose. So Jesus said it like this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Wouldn't it have been crazy for Jesus to die on a cross for our sins if there was another way? Why would Jesus go through all the effort of coming from heaven to earth to die for our sins if all we had to do is say we're climbing a mountain however we want to go, take whatever path? He believed that he was really the way. And finally, what about the resurrection? My fifth question. Did Jesus rise from the dead? This question is, is, is crucial because Paul says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, our faith is in vain it's futile. It's, it's, it's futile, and we're still stuck in our sins. If you want to explore Christianity, study the resurrection. Historically, look at the evidence for the resurrection historically. Now, people have come up with rebuttals against the resurrection. They'll say things like, "Oh, Jesus just, you know, he—it's he, the swoon theory. You know, what he passed out on the cross, and then they put him in a tomb and." And then you know he resuscitated himself. Now think about that. Jesus was beaten to a pulp beforehand. He was crucified. They stuck a spear in his side. They wrapped him in all about seventy-five pounds of garments, and then they put a two-ton stone in front of the tomb. And then he just unrolled himself, and then walked out and said, "Behold, I'm alive." Others said that oh, the, the early Christians they were just hallucinating. That's what's wrong, folks. I have hallucinated before, and that's not hallucination. (laughs) Others, uh, you know, would say things like, the body was stolen. They stole Jesus' body. But if the body was stolen, if it was stolen by the disciples, why would the disciples steal the body, go announce that he died, and then go die martyrs' deaths, knowing his body was hidden away? They encountered him. They believed in him, and it changed their lives. And if indeed his body was stolen by skeptics per se, the moment the disciples were saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive, they would have said, these guys are full of it. Check it out, we hit him here. So those are some wonderful thoughts. So what are some facts then that can help us feel good about the resurrection historically? Well, he appeared to women first. Now, why is that significant? Well, in the, in, in the Greco-Roman world, Uh, the women weren't valued as much as they should have been. But Jesus valued women incredibly. And it was said that it took two women's votes to equate to one uh, man's vote. Now, if you were making up Christianity, why would you have women as the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection when their testimony was not considered credible unless indeed he appeared to women? Secondly, We also have this idea that of the multiple appearances. He appeared on several different occasions to disciples and on one occasion to over 500 people. And when Paul was writing 1 Corinthians, he said, there's still eyewitnesses alive. In other words, you can go and ask people, Paul's saying. There's still people who were there in that moment when he appeared. So that's something for us to consider. But then... The life change. The disciples could hardly follow Jesus during his earthly ministry. But after they saw the resurrected Messiah, many would go die martyrs' deaths. The resurrection changed history. We can't even explain the church apart from it. We wouldn't be in this room right now if there was no resurrection. He is alive. He's alive indeed, right? You guys know that out here, right? Come on, do it with me. He's alive. alive. Yeah, he's alive indeed, right? So the tomb became empty so our lives could become full. And that's what happened to me. I placed my faith in Jesus as a confused teenager, uneducated, full of guilt for many of the decisions I had made in my life, and alienation from my parents, from all the arguments and everything that we had, aimless about my future, And the resurrected Savior got a hold of my life and the last thing I thought I would be doing in 1991 is coming back to my hometown to say he's alive and he can change your life and he can give you hope and peace. I would want to say, I hope wherever you are in this room that you'll consider the claims of Christianity and realize that Christianity and being a Christian doesn't mean you have to check your brain's at the door. It was becoming a Christian that turned me into a person of ferocious learning. It was without this worldview that I was a dimwit. And now I'm excited to tell you this great news. And I hope if you don't know Jesus that you know he loves you like crazy. That He will give you meaning and purpose in life, and he'll forgive you for everything you've ever done. This journey's not easy, but it's a whole lot better with him than without him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for allowing me to be here and and just to share your word. I pray that uh, it encourages people, and if anyone in this room has never placed their faith in you, may they in the quietness of their hearts say, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me, and by faith I want to surrender and trust you. I believe you rose from the grave. I believe that you exist. I believe that you're good in the midst of suffering and evil. I believe that you're the way, the truth, and the life, and I ask you to help me to walk with you and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.